listening to Tax Talk, a podcast series from the Irish Tax Institute, which explores current issues in the world of taxation. I'm your host, Samantha McCochran. In this episode, we examine the key issue of funding for our homegrown business sector as the economy begins to emerge from what we all hope is the last lockdown. Now, some businesses have done very well during the pandemic and may be looking for investment to expand. But many businesses, particularly in the area of hospitality, will need funding to kickstart their business after months of closure and restricted trade. Small businesses and startups often have limited access to funding and for many of them, the Employment Investment Incentive Scheme is an essential source of finance. And this scheme is currently being reviewed by the Department of Finance. So how does the scheme work? Is it fit for purpose in an economy that needs to be rebooted? And can it incentivise the much needed investment in our Indigenous sector? Joining me to discuss these issues are Laura Lynch of Laura Lynch and Associates, who provides strategic advice to startups and SMEs to raise funds through EIIS. Brendan Shepherd, CEO of Smart Factory Solutions, who has personally had experience of raising funds under the scheme as an Enterprise Ireland high potential startup. And Nick Corcoran, co-founder of Cardinal Capital, the biggest provider of alternative finance in the Irish economy. So if I can start with you, Nick, how important do you think alternative finance sources will be for business as we recover from COVID? Samantha, I think one of the big deficiencies in the Irish economy over the last decade or so was diverse equity financing sources. Part of the rationale when we launched our first private equity fund in the SME sector, um, which is back in probably 2013 now, 2012, was to address that over-reliance on bank debt for growth. And our view is always that using bank debt for growth capital or risk capital is a complete mismatch of the capital required for the risk. So the way we look at the market is a constant push out of the traditional banking market providing growth capital and providers like ourselves and schemes like the EIS filling that role of providing risk capital to companies. And that's a much more appropriate funding base for a company that's either in startup phase or in growth phase. And, and for us, we see it as a continuing trend. And I think the evolution of a scheme like the EIS is really important in, in broadening that base of funding. And, you know, we're just... As, we, as I said at the intro there, we're just starting to kind of go on this journey when there is a lot of uncertainty ahead. But we do know that companies, viable companies, will need some access to funding. EIIS, I mean, there's a lot of folks at the moment on savings and people, people savings maybe being the kind of driver of growth. But EIIS, how, how could you see that playing a part in our recovery? Savings are important. And I, and I think you know, there's a lot of talk about consumerism, retail spending. Um, and the effect that will have on driving growth. And, and, and that's nice. You get your multiplier effect from that dispersion of savings. But I don't think it really fuels a long-term growth perspective. What would, I think is really a potential opportunity right now is to divert some of that savings into equity investments. And that can be through structured schemes that allow the smaller investor access EIS funding. And, and for me, as I linked equity to growth and startups, that's what drives innovation and R&D, that's what will ultimately drive employment and it drives a broader base for the economy. So I think the, the savings aspect is, is really an interesting potential. But longer term, anything that broadens equity capital access is a positive for an entrepreneurial economy. There is a, a caution in it in that, you know, particularly when you get into the savings market, that a lot of the, the critiques of employment schemes like the EIS or funding schemes stem from the revenues perspective of the old BES scheme, uh, where it was widely structured as a tax break. And I think that informs a lot of the way the revenue, the Irish revenue approaches this scheme. 
And, and I think to, ch- to address that and give a quality underwriting potential for equity investments, to give a structured approach to it that's based on the project, not a tax break, will alleviate some of the Irish revenues concerns and, and allow a broader pool of access for those savings to, to equity product. Okay, well, it sounds like there is an opportunity there. Brendan, you yourself had first-hand experience of this. H- how did you find it? Was, it? was it a positive experience or did you find some hiccups or some challenges along the way? It was a really challenging experience, Samantha. We started our business in 2016. We knew we had a, a real, you know, a viable business opportunity, lots of traction from potential multinational companies. And then we applied for EIIS outline approval in June of 2017. And it took more than three years before we actually got the approval. And oh my goodness, the, the barriers and the the challenges that we faced along the way and and you know, I was certain that we qualified and I was certain that we, we deserved to get the, uh, the relief. But my goodness, it was, it was a really difficult uh, process. The, the complexity, there's, there's over 100 pages of, of rules and regulations. You know, we're, I'm a mechanical engineer. We're surrounded by techie, nerdy types. And, you know, we're not for, I guess, advice from people like Laura, from, you know, just having a good CFO on board in the company and just being being absolutely determined that we could get through. I think, you know, at, at times it felt like the process was, was, was designed to wear you out and, and hope that you'd give up rather than actually trying to help a startup. And did, did you feel tempted along the way just to oh, walk away from times, holding? Numerous times. And, and the, I suppose they, what, what kept us going was that we knew that we deserved it. We, you know, we knew that we were entitled to it. And, and we had brought in investors on board on the basis that we had outline approval. So we had, you know, we had a, a really good business idea. We had, you know, markets. We were doing work in Ireland, but also abroad. So we knew, we, you know, we we had a, a viable business opportunity here. Enterprise Ireland were so supportive, you know, every step of the way. And the contrast, really, between the support and the encouragement and the resources that Enterprise Ireland put in our direction, you know, every time we picked up the phone or sent an email, there was somebody in Enterprise Ireland willing to help us. We couldn't find anybody in revenue in the EIS department that would even communicate, that would even engage. It was larger communication up on the portal and then two months before we'd get a response. You know, if I treated my customers like that, we, we certainly wouldn't be in business. So it was sheer and utter determination that we were going to we were going to get it that, that kept us going. And Laura, you're a council member of the Institute, but you also, in your day job, are dealing with these kind of companies, small companies that are, you know, it's, it's not like they have loads of choice in terms of accessing funding. This is, they're going for EIS because it is one of the ways they can actually access this kind of finance. Are these the kind of issues you come across regularly or is, is, is Brendan a little bit of an outlier there or is, that, is this kind of the kind of repetitive signs or instances of this you see? Yeah, unfortunately not, Brendan, you're not alone. And certainly for that period, certainly up to 2019, there was a significant number of delays in the system. And and I suppose the background to that and the reasons for that was, I suppose, EIS grew out of BES that Nick would have referenced earlier. And, and it was trundling along fine, except that GBA rules or general block exemption state aid rules came out of the EU, which required another layer of rules to comply with in order for a company raising the funds to qualify for EIIS. 
So revenue were obviously before this very much focused on and familiar with the rules domestically, but then they had to start ensuring that they weren't in any way in non-compliance with the EU rules. And obviously there's huge implications of that from, from a state perspective, from an EU's perspective. So the result of that was that the applications slowed down and the processing of the outline and the actual applications themselves totally slowed down in an apart- a department that was quite under-resourced and is still, I would say, still under-resourced as well. When you compare it to other departments of revenue in the context of the business divisions, other tax reliefs like R&D tax credit, etc., it's, it's, with, it's within currently the remit of the legislation and technical policy part of of revenue as opposed to the actual business division itself. So there there were some of the reasons why. And then there was the convoluted application process. So as Brendan alluded to, you started off with outline approval, which is like a piece of paper that says, in principle, you should qualify if people put money into your company. And you handed that to prospective investors. And then on foot of that, they'd make an investment. And then you had to fill in another form when you issued the shares and got the money in. And your expectation was that the certificates would come out of revenue straight away because they'd already told you you should qualify. And what was happening was that companies had outline approval. And then when they went in for the actual approval, they were being denied. And then that process of engagement and appealing that to revenue. And as Brendan said, the very long gaps between when you might get a response to the queries that you sent in. So it became very, very difficult. And I suppose from that then came the Indicon report, which suggested a lot of administrative improvements to the scheme. And it recognised it's a very good scheme. It does what it's supposed to do in terms of providing an alternative source of finance to people who would otherwise be unfundable, certainly unbankable, where they're pre-revenue or only in R&D phase. But they suggested a lot of administrative changes to it. And in fairness to revenue, they took a number of those on board. Certainly, they implemented a lot of the investor-focused changes. So they've increased the amount that an investor can put in and qualify for tax relief upon. They're giving the relief all in one go as opposed to having two stages of relief in year one and year four. But what they have done is move to a self-certification scheme. And what that basically means is that instead of revenue sending out the certs, the company has to self-certify and send out the certs. So again, that's really good from an investor's perspective because they're getting the, the certs more or less straight away. But it brings with it then, it transfers all the risk over to the company themselves because if they get anything wrong, whether it's administratively or fundamentally wrong with the scheme, they have to pay back the tax bill. So if I'm an investor and I got my tax break and something is done wrong in the scheme, I always keep my tax break, so I don't care. All the risk is is sitting on the company. And as Brendan said, and it's no disrespect to engineers, but you know, you're not specialist tax advisors and this burden of compliance of like 45 pages of small print legislation supplemented by 98 pages of guidelines on top of the day job and trying to build a company and build a business it is really too much so it's a nice scheme it's not fit for purpose in my view in today's age and certainly not in 2021 and as we face into the next number of years. And Nick, you invest in companies all the time, quite substantial sums in in many cases. If we're going to step back and kind of have some big picture thinking about this, what kind of things would make it easier for companies to, you know, get this kind of investment? Presumably a lot of the bureaucracy and red tape is is very challenging and, and some of it presumably could be streamlined. But what kind of things are help a company when it is taking in a big investment? I think listening to, to Brennan's experience, Samantha, for me, the biggest risk would be the uncertainty as an investor. 
and as a company, which is if I'm attracted to an opportunity and I want to fund it, I'm not just funding it for a tax break, however, but I do need certainty of what that taxation impact will be on my investment. And I think having the self-certification addressing that is a positive, but that's too, too heavy a burden for a company to carry, I think, to underwrite tax risk for an investor. That would be one of my biggest concerns if I was acting as an investor, because I'm not doing this for a tax break. I'm doing it to, because I like the company I'm investing in. I appreciate the, pr- the plan and the growth. Therefore, you're actually underwriting an, an unbearable risk on the company itself, which depreciates your investment. So I, I don't like that. I also think the timeline as well. I mean, four years in a high growth company is a lifetime. So I, I think having optionality for any EWIS investor to be able to accrete the benefits of that over four years, regardless of whether you're above 500,000 and stretching to seven, I don't think that's appropriate either. So I think you need a shorter time frame. You know, I, I think, as Laura said, an application process that extends to 100 pages is not fit for purposes, it's not scalable. What I would view right now is that the economy has a significant equity gap that needs to be filled. And that equity gap is on those companies who have been incredibly successful during the pandemic, that have growth, and those that are restructuring balance sheets because they have an overhang of debt and have been impacted. And that equity gap is, is not going to be filled by debt. It's going to be filled by equity. And so therefore, we need a broader scheme. So EWIS cannot be broader in its current form. And for me, I think one of the interesting things, as, as Brendan mentioned, is the experience of Enterprise Ireland is extremely positive. They have a distribution network, they have a knowledge base, they have an experience curve of processing um, entrepreneurial incentives. And I think placing the EWIS under the aegis of Enterprise Ireland with revenue approval would be a far more efficient model. I don't think revenue is, is set up to determine the qualifications or classifications of each individual application, and you can scale that. So I think I'd like to see those changes and broaden the equity base and also streamline the process where it's quantifiable. It, it's clearly transparent what qualifies a, a company and there's no subjective measurements which you may have in a, a revenue scheme. And Laura, there is a Department of Finance review going on of this scheme. And I know over the years there have been several reviews. Do you think this is a bigger review than we've seen before? Or would you be optimistic about seeing change coming out of this? And also, what are the core things that the Institute has suggested in its submission to the department? We're certainly hopeful that this is, there's change coming. You know, the Department of Finance, in fairness to them, really lent us a very strong ear. They gave us carte blanche in terms of speaking openly and honestly. There was a public consultation ran over three days. All kinds of stakeholders were able to contribute to that and they really seem to be listening. And hopefully that will translate into some fundamental changes to the scheme in the forthcoming Budget and Finance Act. In terms of changes that we would like from from the Institute, I suppose what we're really calling for is simplification and, as Nick said, certainty. You know, I mean, there's several tax advisors who won't touch this because it's fraught with risk from our perspective in terms of advising on it. As an advisor, it doesn't sit well with me that I can't give certainty to my client and that's not a way to run a tax system. A taxpayer needs to know whether they're the investor or the company, what their tax obligations are so that they can fulfil them. And that's a basic right as a taxpayer. Over 81% of companies that raise EIIS raise less than half a million. And there's statistics to prove that. 
But the cost of raising those funds is the same whether they raise half a million or five million. And what we're calling for is a much more simplified scheme that founders can implement with the security and knowledge and comfort that they're doing it right. Because generally people want to do things right and it's very difficult to do that if they don't know what the right thing is to do. There are other jurisdictions within the EU that have very similar types of state aid that are very, very simple and there's no reason for us to, you know, overcomplicate things when we shouldn't have to do so. I'd also like to see that our state bodies interpret GBER and state aid rules more to the benefit of our citizens and our companies rather than as narrowly as they're ap- as they're applying them. We know that that's what happens in other jurisdictions in the EU and they really push the envelope in terms of what they perceive as permitted under GBER. And I'd like to see that we would take a similar approach because otherwise we're at a disadvantage to the people of, of Paris and Brussels and, and all those other places that might have similar schemes as ourselves. I would also like to see EIIS come into the current century. There's there's a hangover and a cut and paste of a lot of the BES rules that are just not appropriate or fit for purpose in today's age. There are prohibitions on holding company structures and, and certain com- connected party rules and then following your money, etc. that just don't recognise that that's how people do business now. There's restrictions in terms of subsidiaries and, and international expansion and, and what a company needs to do and comply with. So, you know, that again doesn't lend itself to what EIS is for. BES was for funding capital intensive projects on the island of Ireland. EIIS is for funding scale and international expansion and things like that as well. So I'd like to see that happening also. What else would I like? What's my wish list? The application process, all that kind of, it's just simplification and reducing the cost of doing it and reducing the compliance requirements. Brandon, like simplification has come up quite a few times there. As the kind of user who didn't have an ideal experience by any stretch, what would have been some of the things that might have made the whole experience a bit smoother for you? I think, again, going back to the start of the process, we, we didn't really know what we were, we were doing. You know, it was a very simplified approach in terms of the initial application form. And then it just it turned into this hugely complex list of rules that it felt from the start that it was a barrier for a small company to, to, to qualify as opposed to here's a system, you know, we're, we're in the business of creating jobs. We're trying to, you know, we're, we have global ambition, you know, companies, we're doing business all around the world and we want to, you know, create more jobs in Ireland. So if that's what the scheme is intended for, to support Irish businesses with global ambitions, it's, it's far too complicated, especially for the amount of funds that are involved. And the big challenge for us was the lack of engagement, the lack of communication. You know, if, if there was something that we needed to do to, for clarification, whatever, you know, I, I felt that revenue, we, we have an excellent re- relationship with revenue now in terms of our day-to-day tax and whatever, but it felt like the the group that we were dealing with in EIS were hugely under pressure in terms of resources. And, and you know, it, it felt like it was a almost like a little distraction to their their, their organization, that if they... If they kept pushing back against us, that eventually we'd wither away and, and, and stop and stop being a problem for them. So it never felt like that there was somebody there who was looking at our situation and saying, we're going to help these guys. Whereas when I look at the process, we got funding with Enterprise Ireland. You know, right from the start, there's a DA appointed to us. 
And that person, excellent, you know, really professional, really on top of his game. Right from the start, he has helped us every step of the way. What can we do? Introductions to companies, into, into relationships with co- uh, companies outside of Ireland. Just been magnificent. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't praise Enterprise Ireland enough for the support that they've given us. And I contrast that to what the EIS application was, and it was just so challenging. So we can we can do it right. Yeah, absolutely. With the right with the right mindset, I think it can it can work. Yeah. Nick, just in terms of appetite from investors, if there were some big changes to come and it became a smoother process, and in order for it to become a part of our recovery, do you think there's quite a bit of appetite on the investor side? I mean, it is high risk, I suppose, these type of companies. But on the other side, would there be people who have some amount of wealth willing to to to, to back small Irish businesses? Do you think? I think. There are, Samantha. I, I think where we invest is obviously on a much larger entity basis, so it's quite different. And so if I put myself into a position of looking at a smaller micro-enterprise to the smaller end of the SME, yes, I still believe there's an appetite. I think if you look at the alternates right now, you have negative interest rate environment for deposits. You have effectively criteria that are driving investors into structured products, which carry marginal returns. So I think there's that aspect of providing an alternate route for investment. The other aspect as well, which is also touched on in the EIS, is related party investment. That a lot of people actually will want to back the people they know for the companies they're starting up and be associated with the company. And my understanding of EIS is that that can also limit the, the relief. And we back management. So if you know the people, you're already ahead in your investment decision. And I think that's a key point on it. The other aspect, of course, is looking at a broader tax regime, which is you can do away with a lot of schemes when you have a very low capital gains tax and you have an option scheme and incentivization scheme that encourages entrepreneurial activity and management performance and management benefits and participation. So that's a high level overview of tax. But when you deal with schemes like EIS, I think allowing the more quasi retail investor access it through a broader structure of funds would be one route. And what I'd also like to see, because it's echoing what I said already and and Brendan's experience is, I think this is in the wrong home. I don't think this should be in revenue. This should be in an Enterprise Ireland home, overseen by revenue with clear objectives in terms of the measurement of what qualifies. And that will bring a whole breath of fresh air, I think, to this scheme, which is putting it in the right home, structure with clear decision making and clear criteria and allowing a broader base of investment. And it comes back to my point earlier on, which is there's a huge deficiency in equity in the market, in the economy right now. It's addressed in venture capital funds for certain sectors. It's addressed in mid-market funds. It's addressed in various pockets of capital, which is great to see. But the micro and the restructuring and the startup and the entrepreneur faces huge obstacles in getting finance. And I think anything that alleviates those obstacles is a positive when you have or position your economy as a high-growth entrepreneurial economy, and the capital system has to back that up. And right now, EIS does not back that up. But it can, with some fairly quick and fairly high-level changes, but major changes, not just tinkering around the edges. That won't fix this. The scale of equity requirement is too big. And when you look at, what, 38 applications in 2019, that's paltry. You may as well not have this scheme with that. So it has to be large scale, it has to be clear cut, and it has to be an incentivization for people to back the business they see every day. And, and to me, that will bring a lot of, of, of benefits to the economy overall. Yeah, and listening to Brendan's experience there, I can understand why maybe there is only 38 applications. But 
Laura, from your own first-hand experience of dealing with companies, do you think there is already a lot of appetite there? Never mind going into a post-COVID uh, situation, but have you seen that there is an interest there, an appetite there, but you know, barriers like Brendan was talking about maybe have put people off? From an investor's perspective, there's huge appetite actually, and the 2019 numbers reflect the uncertainty that companies did not realise or know what risks they were taking on when the new self-certification rules kicked in on the 1st of January of 2019. So most of our advice to companies was don't take in EIIS money, you don't know what kind of a check that you're going to be writing. So there's huge investor appetite and I would represent several business angels and business angel syndicates as well. So I see both sides of it. And they're all, the first question they'll ask is, does the company offer EIIS on this investment? So there's definitely a lot of appetite there. But what's happening is that EIIS rules don't reflect commercial reality. So, for example, they don't reflect that non-EIIS investors might co-invest with EIIS investors. So if I'm a non-EIIS investor and I'm putting my money in and you're an EIIS investor and there might be a clawback of your tax relief that the company has to pay, I'm not going to be happy that my growth money is going to be used to pay your tax bill, for example. So there's now that adds a new layer of complexity to the legal process and the costs that are associated with that as well. The connected party rules, again, they came in on foot of an European Commission issue they had in terms of founders being able to claim EIIS. But the rule that came in basically was a hammer to crack a nut in terms of anyone who has any capital in the company at all cannot follow their money unless the capital they already have or a connected party has qualified for EIIS as well. And that has led to some bizarre outcomes that I've seen in practice. It also doesn't reflect the de-risking that comes with, you know, your typical company now, what they want to do is strengthen their boards, for example, you know, and, and most investors like to see people put their money where their mouth is and, and you know, put their own money into a company. So, for example, if, if a company wants to attract a chairperson or somebody to really strengthen their board, that board person would often be an investor themselves and truly commit to the company and, they will come onto the board, etc. And they might be given something like share options to attract them as part of the remuneration package. That will disqualify them from the tax relief. You know, that's a, that's an outrageous outcome as well. And all these kind of things, what they do, these protections, they also protect the state's investment and they're being prohibited by the EIIS rules. You know, the state is making an investment in its own little way of the tax break. So anything the company can do to ensure that it stays alive and you know executes on its business plan and, and makes a profit and generates PAYE and generates VAT anything it can do to do that well then obviously the state is de-risking its investment as well the rules also don't acknowledge that normal commercial terms and investor protections are part of any deal you know there's going to be a certain amount of de-risking because you're already investing in a very high risk entity that's more likely to fail, actually. So there's some normal investor protections that you put in there. The revenue expects you, not the revenue, but the legislation requires you to do away with a lot of those normal protections. So what's already a high-risk equity investment is expected to now be even more riskier. And that goes back to people's savings. You know, why, why would I risk my savings for a tax break 
which is more risky than I, if I went down and got three or four percent on a on a bond that I went into for five years or something. So there's a lot of issues with it. It just really doesn't reflect today's market, I think. Okay, well, just a final question for you all. The economy is starting to open up. We've seen retail, hospitality is on the way. Brendan, how are you feeling about the year ahead, the reopening and the opportunity for recovery ahead of us? Yeah, I'm very positive, Samantha. We've had our busiest year, ironically. So we're we're focused on digital transformation and COVID has actually accelerated digital transformation. So companies that we knew needed the types of solutions that we're delivering have really engaged with us in the last 12 months. And, you know, we're, we're doing projects remotely and meetings remotely and it's changed it's changed the mindset what what were barriers before it guys saying oh this can't be done you know this is now it's like okay when can we have it so i think i'm really positive i think it's it's there's a lot of a lot of companies have experienced difficulties but i see for us and the business the space we're in I, i think it has really helped to bring focus to digital transformation and the value that we can create with it and Laura, would you, would your clients see reason to be optimistic or do you think it's going to be a challenging time ahead? My clients would, I suppose I focus on like the SMEs and in terms of exactly like Brendan there, you know, the high growth companies, investors, that kind of thing. So I think anybody who has been dependent on the local economy is going to take a while before they can get up and running again. And, and obviously we'd like to acknowledge that too. But I, I've like that, I've never been so busy. There's a huge amount of transactions happening. It's very exciting. People who had pressed the pause button for a little while, they all got it done before Christmas then as well they realised that there was still good value there investors and, and people have savings too I think that's why it's different from the last recession there was a lot of debt circling there's a lot of savings circling now and people are mad to get out spending because we haven't been allowed so I think anybody who can capitalise on that opportunity um, definitely have a lot to look forward to my concern or my fear would be there is a big hole in the exchequer obviously that has to be filled by the various Covid payments I'm afraid that some of the tax reliefs that are in, on the books at the moment, that they may be all looked at quite critically just to see if they're required anymore, if there's going to be any tinkering with them. I would hope that won't happen for a long time to let us get through this period and let us keep the few tax reliefs that we have for at least until next year when we know what the new normal looks like. And Nick, you're actively investing through Cardinal at the moment. What's your perspective on how business is faring and, and, and what's the outlook in your in your mind? Yeah, we're, we're continuing to be very active. We've completed two new investments in nursing homes and, and e-commerce technology. So we've about 750 million euro reasons to be happy or positive about it because we have a long way to go on a fresh fund, which will probably invest about three quarters of a billion in the real estate business, the credit business. We've seen a lot of fluctuations over the last year. Very positive overall, but there is a but. And I think, you know, we've seen that emergence of a two-tier economy where tech, healthcare, financial services and food is roaring. And yet we have this part of the economy, which is retail, leisure and related activities that's just decimated. Concerned about that. For 2021 into early 2022, I'm not concerned. I, I think we'd have such an un, unspent um, savings or power and in terms of the economy roaring back, that would be very strong. I do have an eye on the longer term horizon, though, when you look at the debt overhang, you know, that Laura referred to and also the macro backdrop. However, 
which that brings me back to why do we need equity? We need equity to invest. We need equity to drive that growth in companies. We need equity to develop the infrastructure. And the pandemic has shown up a number of shortfalls in the economy. You know, there's much talked about national broadband. You know, we have to see it. It's a critical part of national infrastructure. Also, the efficiency of allowing a business pivot to new markets, to new products. That was a key requirement over last year. So overall, we're extremely positive and we're following our positivity with large amounts of investment. But there are a few clouds on the horizon that will need to be managed in advance and not reactionary. And part of my concern around looking at policy now is it's slightly reactionary. And I'd rather see something a little bit more structured, but how you fundamentally change EISS how you change the share option scheme, how do you change the capital gains tax regime. They're key issues, and I think if they're addressed, we'll have a, a very strong economy over the next decade, but it's not without a lot of work and a lot of in- investment and innovation. Okay, thanks for that. we leave it there. Thanks to all of you for joining me today, and thank you very much for listening. That's it for this episode of Tax Talk. <laughs>